and can be found on page 1113 in the Red Bibles. We have Bibles in other languages and versions available at the back, and page numbers for those are on the screen. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would speak, seek him, and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As one of your own poets has said, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Cherry, um, very much for that reading. And um, 
Please keep your Bibles open, page 1113, I think it was, and let's pray together, shall we? Lord, we pray that as we uh, look at this passage that you will thrill us again with the gospel, thrill us again with gospel truth, so that we may have confidence and courage to live it and proclaim it in this city and beyond. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are in Acts 17. Um, Just by the way, um, thank you to those of you who took me on the park run yesterday. (laughs) It is an exquisite form of torture, isn't it, really? Um, But it has a wonderful endorphin rush. So, uh, yeah, for about an hour I felt brilliant. (laughs) And then, of course, hobbling around. No, it's lovely. But uh, we're ending this series and we're finishing uh, this little section in Acts. And I was wondering where to finish Should we go right to the end of Acts where St. Paul is in Rome and he's sitting in his his home and he's welcoming all his visitors to him? Lovely, homely little picture, but perhaps a little bit too cosy and, you know, speaking too much of retirement. So we'll move on from that one. I wondered whether we might finish at the farewell to the Ephesian elders. But that's far too emotional, so we can't do that one. So I wondered about finishing at the shipwreck, but that's too catastrophic. I did actually do that at my previous church, which wasn't a very sensible thing to do. It was my last sermon was on the shipwreck, um, which was not very clever. So we're going to finish in Athens. And Athens was the place where Rachel and I had our honeymoon. And uh, that bears no reason to why I chose it. But uh, it is a lovely, lovely, lovely place. And there it is, um, Athens. And uh, you might call it a university city, um, an urban center, an intellectual center, but what has stood out for me in this chapter, as, as you always do when you get to read it again and study it, you suddenly go, oh, so that's what's going on. <laughs> what stands out is something that's easily missed, and it's this, it's courage. It's courage. You see, we often think that, um, that the story of Paul in Athens is an exchange of ideas and, and so on and so forth. But I was just uh, given the book, um, Biography of Paul by Tom Wright. And he has this lovely section on Athens, which is really good, in which he says Paul wasn't just speaking in a marketplace. He was taken into a court. The Areopagus was a court. And he had to defend himself in a court. And 300 years earlier, Socrates was condemned in that court and was forced to drink hemlock and and die. So how is Paul going to defend himself? And the way that he defends himself is with the truth. He has courage to speak about the truth, trusting that as the true truth is spoken about, it would resonate with some of the hearers. That's an amazing thing, actually. I've never seen that before. So we'll we'll, we'll go through it. And uh, we have three points, (laughs) inevitably. And a conclusion. And a PS. No, no, it's all right. I'm only kidding. Um, Courage in Athens. Here we are. So uh, Paul, moved by a needy world. When Paul arrived in Athens, he reacted differently to when Rachel and I arrived in Athens. We simply saw the sights. And back then, uh, you know, lots of statues and so on and so forth. But back then, the sites were the reality of life in Athens. The city was, was full of idols. There were more idols than there were people. 
in Athens, apparently. There were 10,000 people in Athens. More idols, statues all over the place. And Paul's reaction is an interesting one. Just have a look. Um, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Now that word distress is the word for which you get paroxysm. It's a sort of, oh, it's, a, it's an agony you might feel about someone you care about. Uh, somebody who's given themselves to something false. Now you might say, well, we don't have idols today. Um, I don't know, just watching the telly yesterday, the sight of grown men crying at Wembley was, was amazing, wasn't it? By the way, it was a good result, wasn't it? <laughs> Sorry about the Reds there, but I, you know. When I came here, I was asked which football team would I support, and I said 13 years ago, the, one to, you know, the, the first one who gives me a ticket, that's what I said. And of course then, and you could always get a ticket to City, but now it's really quite hard. Always, uh, anyway, we won't go. We, sorry, I shouldn't have gone there. I shouldn't have gone there. We've had peace so far for 13 years. But uh, idols, Jonathan Sachs uh, was the chief rabbi. He said, we all have to live for something. What are we here for? What would put life right? He said, Homo sapiens is a meaning-seeking animal. If, if there is one thing that great institutions of the modern world don't do, it's to provide meaning. So we have got lots of idols, lots of competing truths out there, if, you, if, if I could put it like that, incompatible ideas. And they do bring confusion. I came across this quotation in, uh, in one of Tim Keller's books, um, Making Sense of God. He, he, he says this, the Russian philosopher Vladimir Solovyov. Yes, you've all heard of him, haven't you? Yes, that's right. Well, he said this. He, he, he would rather cheekily summarize the ethical, ethical reasoning of secular humanism like this. Man descended from the apes. Therefore, we must love one another. It's quite a, of course, the two phrases don't go together, do they? But actually, when you think about it, if man is descended from the apes, why would you want to love one another? Why not? Just, um, uh, you know, why not? Why, why don't the strong eat the weak in the past? So we're in this kind of confusion at the moment. And into this, Paul doesn't condemn. He draws alongside, and in verse 17, he reasons the word, um, it's linked with the word dialogue. He dialogues. He doesn't monologue. He doesn't preach to them. He dialogues. He tries to get inside their world and uh, and to understand and to begin to talk about the Christian faith. So it's a lovely thing. He's moved to do that. And uh, I would pray that you would, you, you, would, you would be moved in the same way. Uh, to be pushed outwards. To start to pray for people that you, that you know and love and care about. To have, uh, have that coffee with them. Uh, to, uh, to get inside their world. Sometimes maybe even to read a gospel to them. Because we know that their idols will let them down badly in the end. So, there's Paul. He's moved. And it got him into trouble. Big trouble. Because he was called before the court. And so that's where we go with the next point. And in the court, he's wondering how he's going to respond. Do you see verse 19? 
there are these icy words. Verse 19. They took him and brought him to the meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, <clears throat> and I, can you, you can just feel, may we know this kind of teaching, this new teaching you're presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears. We would like to know what they mean. A bit of, yeah, a bit of ice in that. <laughs> How's he going to respond? Well, he takes courage and he tells the truth about the true God, trusting that it will resonate in the minds of the people that God himself created, even though they don't know yet about God. He's going to tell the Bible story and he's going to talk about the God of the Bible, trusting that it will make sense. He's going to talk about a God-sized God. And if I could leave you with anything, it's these next two points. That as you go forward in life, you need a God-sized God. You need a God-sized God, first of all. Let's look at what this picture of the God-sized God is. Only a God-sized God can fulfill your hopes and dreams. An illustration I've often used, but, you know, this is why I need to retire, um, is, uh, is, is the Coper- Copernican Revolution. And uh, where, where, where Copernicus sort of came out and said, no, everybody thought that the, the sun revolved around the earth. And he said, no, no, no. No, it's not like that. No, the earth revolves around the sun. The sun is at the center. I know for us, often in our own worlds, we're at the center and everything revolves around us. But actually, a theocentric view of the world says God is at the center. And can I tell you what a relief that is to know? God is at the center of everything. And whatever you are facing and whatever you will face, he's, he's a God-sized God. Let me, let me show you. Wonderful turnarounds here that I, that I love. So um, if you've got your Bibles, you might enjoy um, just following along here. So verse 24, if you can find verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. Can you imagine Paul saying, there's the Parthenon over there, you know, <laughs> God doesn't need a temple to live in, did you know? (laughs) Look, God doesn't need you to build him a temple. He doesn't need you to build him a church. He made the world and everything in it. He built that for you to live in. That's the God-sized God. And isn't that a relief? (laughs) He's the creator. Secondly, verse 25. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Please don't think that God needs you to keep the show going. No, he doesn't. He gives you life and breath to keep you going. God doesn't need you. He doesn't need me to keep the show going here. He's here. He's not leaving. Psalm 50, I love this. God says, if I were hungry, would I tell you? 
I have the cattle on a thousand hills. It's a God-sized God. He's the God of all the nations. Paul goes on. He says, From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. Verse 26. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. He's the God of all the nations. He's not just the Christian God. He's the God of everyone. Everyone you talk to, he's their God. Everyone you know. He's the creator of all and the judge of all. And finally, this lovely picture in verse 29. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design or skill. Here's another turnaround, you see. Well, because kind of pagan worship does this. It always tends to be person-centered. Um, but this is a beautiful picture. Don't make God in your image. Don't ever say, I like to think about God like this, as somebody once did when I was in Canada. And uh, no, that doesn't work. No, he wants to make you and remake you in his image. They're wonderful little turnarounds, aren't they? And as soon as you see them, you go, you kind of feel the strain going from, at least I do anyway, as I think this is a God-sized God. That's, that's a proper God, that is. <laughs> and that's who we worship. A proper God. And all your hopes and all your fears can only be met by a proper God, a real God. Now, it took Paul courage to say that. And, uh, uh, but he was appealing, as it were, to the sense that they would also see the foolishness of, of, of pagan religions and see what a proper God is like. And this proper God brings a proper humility. You can't control this God. I have said this again before many uh, years ago, so you will probably have forgotten this. So I'm banking on that. Um, <laughs> would you turn to Job, page 451? Sorry, I, I'm just giving you my, some of my favorite passages here. This is one of my favorites. Job 41, page 451. Leviathan is often translated as crocodile. And it can, be, it can have that meaning. So let me read this out to you. It's a very, very interesting picture. This is God speaking in the end to Job after all the suffering he's been through. And Job's trying to tell him, you know, why did you do this? Why did you do that? And then God says, I'm not going to give you an answer. I'm just going to tell you I'm God. And then he says this. Can you pull, and I'll just translate a crocodile. Can you pull in a crocodile with a fish hook? Can you tie down the crocodile's tongue with a rope? Can you put a cord through its nose or pierce its jaw with a hook? Will it keep begging you for mercy? Will it speak to you with gentle words? Will it make an agreement with you? For you to take it as your slave for life. Can you make it as a pet, you know, for your kids? 
Put it on leash for the young women in your house. We'll trade us barter for it, so on and so forth. Can you fill its hide with harpoons? Verse 8, if you lay a hand on it, you will remember the struggle and never do it again. Any hope of subduing it is false. The mere sight of it is overpowering. No one is fierce enough to rouse it. And then here's the kicker. Who then is able to stand against me? Who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything in heaven belongs to me. What a God. Can't control him. That's the real God. But guess what? Well, those are the reversals I gave you. Just more quickly whiz through those. Guess what? <laughs> this God loves you. <laughs> and that is the glorious and wonderful thing as we go to the final point. Eventually, Paul gets to this uh, final point. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, verse 30, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. What courage to say all this. For he has set a day in which he would judge the world with justice by a man he has appointed. He has given proof of this by, to everyone by raising him from the dead. Eventually, he gets to Jesus and the resurrection. And he's really saying history is going somewhere. The Bible story is of going from creation through to a final uh, assize, a final judgment. It's going somewhere. And the one who is going to assess your life is the Jesus Christ who rose from the dead. Now that resurrection is our cornerstone. It's our rock. Um, and, uh, and he is the one who, who, uh, to whom we are all answerable. And we have to repent and respond to him. Now, Paul is interrupted here. I think. He doesn't get a chance to go much further, but we know the sort of things he would have said. He commands everyone to repent. How can he pardon us? How can this God pardon us? And we know, of course, the story that Paul says elsewhere, that Jesus, when he came into the world, came not to judge us, but to bear our judgment. The death of Jesus Christ is not there, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not there just simply as evidence and a, to make you go, wow, he's really a true God. It's to wow, it's not just to wow you, it's to melt you. This God came so that you wouldn't be judged and he died in your place and was raised for your justification. And that story is, it just makes sense. So I wonder if my wonderful assistants would come forward. Would, uh, what, uh, maybe if uh, James, you could grab that link. Just go along the front here, that's great. So, <laughs> yes. When in doubt, use an illustration. <laughs> if you're wondering what I'm talking about, let me try and explain. Over here is creation. You need to keep it tight. That's right. Thank you very much. And over here is judgment. Sorry, Paul. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and this is the Bible story, right? So God created, if, if God created you, then you are answerable. Do you see? You're answerable at the end. Now, creation and judgment. If that is the case... As Paul paints this amazing picture, this worldview, then 
the death of Jesus makes absolute sense. The God who created you will, you will, you will, have, you will be answerable. But guess what? He came into the world. He was a heaven-sent hope. He came into the world and he died for you. And he rose again for your justification. Now, if you take away creation, you can just drop that. Or pick it up. You see how it collapses. Or judgment. Then it just doesn't make sense. But in that worldview, thank you, let's keep having it here. In that worldview, this is the Christian worldview, and it makes loads of sense. Thank you very much, gentlemen, for that help in that visual aid. You can give them a round of applause. Just stack that away nicely. So, what a, what, what a message. You know, two, three hundred years after... Paul preached in Athens. All the Greek gods were extinct. Christianity triumphed gloriously. And one of the reasons was that message. And, and Paul develops it further. Because, of course, if that is what your saviour is like, the one who comes and suffers for you and is raised for you, then he can help you in your current suffering because he can, he can tell you that actually there is a resurrection to come. The Stoics would say, and they're mentioned in, in the passage, you just got to control your emotions. Everything is passing away. Just be strong. Well, that's really helpful. The Epicureans didn't believe there was anything after death. So they lived for now. So when they were suffering, they simply ran away. But in the plagues of the, of the, of the first and second century, the Christians stayed. The Christians didn't run away because they believed in the death and resurrection of Jesus. They knew that Jesus didn't detach himself from, from their suffering. He attached himself to us. He died in our place. And he gave a glorious hope. <coughs> With the resurrection, the Stoics didn't think you would ever see your loved ones again. They, they, they didn't think that was going to happen. The Epicureans didn't, didn't think that happens. But you know, with us, um, we, we do see our loved ones again, don't we? We get our bodies back. We get them back made new. Do you see what a phenomenal hope this death and resurrection story is? Heaven isn't a consolation. It is God restoring you to the life that maybe you never had. It is a phenomenal story. It's an amazing one. And if you weren't a Christian, you'd go, well, I'm really interested in that. <laughs> And this is the courage that Paul had as he spoke about it. He spoke about a God-sized God and a heaven-sent hope. And I want to say, I think that's the very best thing we can offer our world. And what we have to do as Christians, whatever I go on to and whatever you go on to here, we must remember that is the very best thing that, the, that, that we can offer the world. What they have is confusion of competing ideas. At best, it will disappoint. But Christianity, the gospel, it's true. And it, there's nothing better. There could be nothing better. Now, the result of all of, of this was mixed, of course, as you see. 
Some uh, sneered. Others said, we want to hear you again. And others believed. But I think one of the most significant things um, that Tom Wright brings out is verse 33. Paul walked out a free man. It resonated with enough people to go, you know, there's something in this. There's something in this. There is something that meets my hopes and my fears in a God-sized God. And there is something that meets my deepest desires in a heaven-sent hope. And it resonates with people. I'm going to finish by turning to um, uh, a way that this is presented in Psalm 90. And I wonder, well, you don't even need to turn to it, actually. Um, Here it is. What does this really mean for you and me? And what does it mean on a day like today? Well, if you look at Psalm 90, you'll see, you'll, see, you'll see the one thing that lasts, the one thing that goes on forever, something that's going to last longer than the mountains. I love the mountains. The house that we have overlooks the Welsh hills, um, which, is, which is lovely. Um, I love the world, all of it. But before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world, what's the one thing that lasts from everlasting to everlasting? You are God. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You're the one constant that will always be there. And now read the beginning of that verse. Lord, you have been our dwelling place. You've been our home throughout all generations. That dwelling place, that word dwelling place, literally it's home. So now what you find is that you've got an everlasting God who, who, who lives forever, but he is the home to which we can all go. And do you see the wonderful line in this? He is our home in all the generations. Every generation. So, amazingly, my mother and my father, I will see them. My grandmother and my grandfather, I will see them. All the believers of every generation, I will see them. You, I will see you again. Me, you'll see me again. Sorry, I won't be preaching. (laughs) Somebody else better than me will be preaching. I can tell you that. (laughs) Do you see how, what a brilliant promise that is? There is one eternal home. God is from everlasting to everlasting. And all of us are on our way there if we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you don't yet, well... How's your opportunity to become a Christian? Death cannot separate us. Sin cannot destroy us. Jesus has died and has risen. He has made the way open to an eternal home. That's a God-sized God and a heaven-sent hope. And that's brilliant, isn't it? Yeah. It's brilliant. See you there.
Let's pray. Lord, as we hear this gospel again, as Paul, as it were, defended himself in Athens, suddenly our, our minds are expanded and our hearts are filled, and we realize again what a great God you are. And what a wonderful Savior you are and Redeemer. And our hearts are full, Lord, of thankfulness to you. There is a home to which we are going that Jesus has bought for each one of us. And nothing can separate us from it. So to you be all glory and all power. And as we we take this opportunity, we bow our knee before you again. You're the God we can't control, but you're the God who loves us so much. Thank you, Lord. Amen.